Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode of the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My hope for our listeners is that you can take away a special nugget of information from each of these interviews, something that will serve you and the people most important to you in pursuing a life built on purpose. My name is Brian Moore co-founder and managing partner of Y Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Barry Schwartz, who 10 years ago gave us one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time called The Paradox of Choice. It's been viewed more than 8 million times. More recently, Barry has been focused on talking about why work is broken. He literally wrote the book on purpose and work with his book, Why We Work. And why do we work? You ever think about that question? Barry does. A lot. And that's why in this interview, I'm going to ask Barry to take us on a tour of the purpose of work in our lives and what you can do to help yourself, your teammates work with a deeper sense of purpose. Here's the interview with Barry. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I want to start things off with what seems like a a relatively simple question. But as you say, the answer is quite surprising. It's urgent and it's complex. Why do we work? Well, so the uh, sort of the standard view is that uh, people work for pay, period. If you pay them, uh, it doesn't matter what they do. If you don't pay them, it doesn't matter what they, if you don't pay them enough, it doesn't matter what they do. People work for pay. And that's all there is to it. So you can organize work in the most sort of efficient, degrading, meaningless way possible. And it really won't matter because people work for pay. And the whole point of my book is to suggest that while, of course, people work for pay, that's not the only reason they work. And it's not even the most important reason they work. People want to do work that's engaging, that's challenging, uh, where they have some control over what they do, some discretion, some variety, where they feel like they're learning on the job. And most important, people want to do work that, that has meaning. They want to feel like uh, somehow what they do makes somebody else's life better, even in some small way. So do you think the concept of meaning as you've been researching and in all of your work is really around this desire to make a positive contribution to others, to help others, to serve others? Is that the central theme that that where meaning is derived from based on your work? Yes. Now, you know, there could be other ways that people get meaning out of what they do, but I think usually most of the time when people talk about their work as meaningful, that's what they mean. And, and this doesn't have to be, you know, curing cancer or eliminating malaria. It doesn't have to be gigantic. If you work in sales uh, in a department store and somebody comes in to buy, I don't know, a suit, uh, your interaction with that person can have an enormous impact on the quality of that person's decision and on the quality of that person's day. And, you know, even on the, in, the, in the short run, on the quality of that person's life if you feel like you're there to serve customers that's one thing if you feel like you're there to make sales that's quite a different thing so that's there's nothing grandiose about working in retail but still every every interaction with a customer is a customer is an opportunity to make that person's life better 
And you uh, shared a great example around uh, the janitorial team. And I believe, and forgive me if I mis- misspeak here, the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, and it's not the Cleveland Clinic, actually. It's, it was, I, I didn't name the place. It was a, a different Midwestern academic hospital. Gotcha. Um, My apologies. But, uh, but yes, uh, that work was done by a colleague and, and close friend of mine named Amy Resnuski. Uh, and uh, she just interviewed hospital janitors who, as I'm sure you know, are at absolutely the bottom of the hierarchy. I mean, they're mostly invisible in the eyes of the rest of the staff and in the eyes of patients and patients' families. And for some of them, they w- it was just you punch your clock, you do your list of chores, emptying trash, washing floors, and so on, and then you punch out. But for a significant minority of them, while they did all those things, they also saw their job as doing whatever was necessary to aid in the pursuing the mission of the hospital. And that meant cheering up patients, cheering up patients' families, making uh, patients' families who were keeping vigils in waiting rooms as comfortable as possible, helping nurses turn big patients so that they don't get bed sores. Whatever way they could be helpful was something, was, uh, something they, were, they were looking for ways to be helpful none of which were part of their job description. And that's what got them out of, out of bed in the morning. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as you and Amy and other folks that you've collaborated with in all of this research, has anything truly surprised you about the findings in any particular area? No, it really hasn't. Uh, well, I, I guess here's what maybe surprised me. You know, I, I live in in a rarefied world. Academics, more probably than any other profession, get to pretty much do what they want, define their work, teach only what they're interested in, or do research on only what they're interested in. I mean, it really is like a gift to be in this position. So a lot of people probably assume that there are certain kinds of jobs where my description of what people want out of their work makes sense. But most jobs aren't like that. So what I find what I found so surprising is that you can find people doing almost every imaginable job, like the hospital janitors, like people who cut hair, like people who work in factories, for whom meaning, engagement, purpose of um, autonomy matter. They leave home every day uh, thinking that at the end of the day, they will have done made some sort of positive contribution to the world, and we tend to overlook that in you know blue collar workers, uh, and and we shouldn't. Yeah, why do you think, and and even perhaps in, in white collar situations, white collar, blue collar, whatever the color collar is, yeah. why has leadership in business today somehow failed to embrace this notion that if you can elevate the meaning or the purpose behind the work that you're going to end up getting better results, which inevitably, you know, performance does matter. Results do matter. Uh, Why has leadership had such a hard time with this concept? Yes, this is really, this is a great puzzle. You know, uh, my book makes this argument. Let me assure you, I am not the first person to have made this argument. In management theory, this sort of argument gets made every 20 years and it turns actual workplace organization upside down for a little while and it but it doesn't stick there seems to be like a gravitational field that pulls people back to the much more cynical view that 
all you have to worry about is paying people. And uh, and I don't know why that is. I mean, I think there's a this notion that people work for pay is so deep a part of our ideology that we just can't stay comfortable with the idea that people want to spend, you know, they spend half their waking lives working and they want to be doing something in that half of their waking lives that enables them to feel good about themselves and their, and their role in the world. It just doesn't stick. Uh, and right now I think there's again, a, a bit of a revival of an appreciation that, uh, that it's not enough to pay people. And, uh, and my sense from what I've read, uh, this is quite preliminary. I wouldn't take this to the bank is that this is especially true of millennials who care enormously about finding work that they, they're going to care about, and also women. Uh, meaning and purpose seems more important to women than it does to men, and more important to young people than to older people. If that's true, what it means is that workplaces are going to have to change the structure of what they do if they're going to attract talented next you know talented women and the talented younger generation you know young people simply won't stand for the kind of work that their parents resigned themselves to uh, and that may force a change in the workplace that is longer lasting than the changes have been in the past uh you know i'm hopeful but i, I by no means guaranteed sure sure no absolutely you know while, while in the- fact let me just say you see the opposite happening you know, there are these professions, education, medicine, and law, where there's lots of opportunity for all these uh, attractive features of work that I described. And more and more, each of those professions is being turned into the equivalent of factory work. You know, uh, teachers get scripts to follow. And what that means is that uh, good teachers quit because that's not why they got into it. Doctors are the un- uh, Lawyers are the unhappiest profession. And doctors are catching up. They don't feel like they can practice the way they want to, and they don't feel that the work they do is meaningful in the way they thought it would be when they entered their rigorous years of training. So we're turning professions into factory jobs instead of trying to turn factory jobs into professions. Hmm. That's an interesting insight there. I, w- I want to go back to women just for a moment. Sure. And what appears to be an incredible absence of feminine leadership. Now, whether that's men who are in touch with their feminine qualities or indeed women who are, are of course, in touch with their feminine qualities as well as the masculine, but in leadership today, whether it's in corporate boards or at the top of corporate hierarchies, to use that terminology, there seems to be an incredible uh, void there. And the predictions on when we may get to some level of parity uh, between men and women in leadership roles is is pretty far out into the future. Some studies as far as you know 2040, 2050, which frankly is uh, kind of a long ways out. And there's some really interesting documentation, some all kinds of studies, the Athena Doctrine in particular, that talks about the importance of feminine values as the future of leadership, that the spirit of collaboration, the spirit of empathy, the spirit of win-win yep. solutions, that this is what's demanded of leaders today, whether it's in business or in governments and leading nations. Why are we struggling so much with this, with this concept? Well, I, you know, I, I can only speculate. One, of course, is that every woman who takes a leadership position is displacing a man. So it's not hard to imagine 
that the people who are at the top of the pyramid are extremely reluctant to give up their positions and even more reluctant to admit that there's perhaps a better way to lead organizations than the way they have. Sure. So there's a lot of resistance. Second, my sense is that maybe until recently and maybe still, the only way women get to the top of the pyramid is basically by acting like men. Mm, interesting. So even though, you know, there's a lot of mouthing off about these other, these so-called feminine values, the women who actually have those values don't make it to the top. Yeah. Almost uh, feeling and, as if uh, they have to act more like their male predecessors or exactly, mentors. You know, yeah. there's, this, there's this lean and mean crackheads uh, ethos to management, you know, it's like you're a warrior going to, to do battle. Um, that's very hard to shake. Uh, and I suspect that people, uh, pe people see that in women, they get, they promote them. And when they don't see that, they worry they'll never be able to make the, the, the hard decisions that running a, an organization requires. Yep. But I think it will change. It's just, you know, uh, I think it may even be a little optimistic to imagine that it'll you know, the world will be different in 20 years. It may take longer than that. So I want to get back to the revival comment that you made about what, what certainly feels like a revival in this uh, finding meaning in, in one's work. Do you credit at all, perhaps, Elton Mayo back in the 40s and the human relations management? Uh, oh, no, absolutely. And if that produced a blip, it just didn't last. And there's, you know, uh, what is theory X, theory Y, which mm -hmm. was in the 1960s. And that also produced a blip. Do you so think... I, again, I, I am certainly not the first person to have articulated this sure, sure. idea. It just doesn't seem to alter practice, you know, sort of across the board. There are a handful of workplaces. If you read, you know, what is it, Forbes or some business publication publishes the 50 best places to work. Sure. Uh, and all I, I assure you, all those places are places that understand what work should be like and what management should be like. And the result is that they have a workforce that's not only talented and competent, but also highly motivated to do the best work they possibly can. None of it because there's somebody looking over their shoulders or their bonus depends on it. Uh, and these, so, you know, if I were buying stock, if I were an inv investor who actually picked stocks, I'd buy stock in uh, companies that are on that list. Because as you said a, a few minutes ago, companies that, were, that, that manage to sustain engaged workforces are more productive than the competition, pretty much across the board, any industry you can think of. Mm -hmm. so, so it pays, even if you don't care about the well-being of your workforce, and all you care about is your share price and your bonus, it pays for you to treat your workforce well. Well, I think there's enough uh, evidence at least mounting in organizations like Conscious Capitalism, uh, in organizations like the B Corp movement, where yep. you have some fairly decent-sized uh, companies who have had sustainable success, have great brand names, that are proving to the rest of the world that this philosophy is not just airy fairy and woo woo, that it does actually produce better results. That's right. Than, than, my hope is that maybe this time around there'll be a critical mass. And then when the next generation of leadership rises through the ranks, they will really insist that it's not going to be business as usual. Uh, 
And, uh, if, and that'll be good for everybody. This is what we call a positive sum game. Everybody benefits. Why have you chosen this particular line of research? What is it about, you know, you had mentioned that uh, in many ways academia is, uh, is a bit of a dream. You get to work on what it is you're interested in. What, why this for you? Well, I've been interested in motivation for pretty much my whole career. And, and, and you know, while you know, academic life is in some sense a dream, what I see around me more and more, I'm past this point, is people struggling to get tenure uh, at a time when the job market is bad enough that if you don't get tenure, it could mean the end of your career. And what that means is that they are trying to meet some productivity standard, whether or not they're at all interested in the work they're doing. They have to produce a certain number of publications. Uh, in the classroom, they have to be popular so that they get good student evaluations, even if they think that that's not really the right way to be teaching. So I think, you know, a lot of the kind of autonomy that I had and took for granted uh, when I started out, uh, younger people don't feel like they have. So that's one thing. The other thing is there is this pernicious effect of grading on students at every level. So, you know, you have students who are really interested in the material and they want to get an A. And sometimes what you do if you're really interested and what you do if you want to get an A are not the same things. And what that does is it, uh, uh, it, it kind of distorts student interests and student activity in pursuit of the grade rather than in pursuit of you know, insight and enlightenment. And this has always been a tension um, in, you know, all throughout education. At the place I teach, which is such an, a selective institution, people used to not worry about their grades because anybody who got a degree from Swarthmore would do fine. It's almost it Montessori-like in its approach. It wasn't quite. I mean, we were quite demanding. But you, you know, if you got a B, it wasn't the end of the world because you could have a B average at Swarthmore and still get into a great medical school and get a great job or get whatever you wanted. Well, those days are gone, and now students feel much more, you know, the pressure of other students breathing down their necks. So even though they are really interested in learning, they are also interested in having a, a, a resume that will get them into whatever the next step is. Mm. Uh, and, and that makes them less good students. Sort of almost so, a blend of the internal versus the instrumental, as you've as you. It's exactly about. right. That's yeah. exactly what it is. And they're at, sometimes, you know, people delude themselves into thinking that you can design an incentive system, say grading, that actually gets exactly what an internal system would get. But that's just you're just kidding yourself if you think you can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you know if you're, I apologize. Well, go on. I was going to, I was going to ask in, in your, and it's on this notion in your recent, uh, one of your recent Ted talks, the way we think about work is broken. Uh, you indicate that a, really a large contributor to the infrastructure of how we view and, and experience work. It dates back to Adam Smith's belief that, you know, humans are somewhat lazy in order to get them to work. There has to be these incentives. And you also talk about what sort of human nature do, do you want to be a part of designing? And I found that to yeah. be incredibly just super. I, I want to talk about that. And, and, and the question for me, for you is, have you thought about, and if so, what is the kind of human nature you want to be a part of designing? 
I have thought quite a lot about that, but let me just uh, back up a step or two to, to sort of try to make clear what what you just said because sure. I don't I, I don't think it's a it's a simple point. But the argument I make in the book is if you start out assuming that people work for pay, period, then you create workplaces focused on efficiency, like an assembly line, and you don't think it matters because people work for pay. So they're going to get paid. Everything is going to be fine and you'll have a nice efficient factory. Well, if every workplace is like an assembly line, then what is going to motivate people to work? The only reason people have for showing up at those jobs is pay because everything else, meaning engagement, variety, all that stuff has been eliminated. So you create environments in which it is true that the only reason people work is for pay. And so you create a human nature where the attitude people have is work is for a paycheck mm -hmm. and I'm going to get my life satisfaction on the weekend and when I'm on vacation. And live two separate uh, lives, lives, essentially, a work life exactly. and a home life. So, so I think Adam Smith was wrong in his assumption that people are basically lazy, but he gave rise to a movement that essentially made him right because though that was the only kind of work that was available to most people. And, you know, there was a Gallup poll that showed that 10% of people are actively engaged around the world are actively engaged by their work. One in 10. So in that kind of an environment, we have essentially created a human nature that is exactly the human nature that Adam Smith assumed we already had. But what that means is that by changing the shape of our social institutions, and work is one of the most important of them since we spend half our lives at work, if we change the shape of work, we change the shape of human nature as well. So what kind of people do we wanna be? And what kind of people do we want our kids to be? And what kind of people do we want our neighbors to be? Well, I want people who want to work, who want to be productive, who want to feel like they're making a difference, even a small one, uh, who don't have to be nudged, coaxed, and bullied into uh, showing up on the job, and who end up at the end of the day, you know, with a fair measure of satisfaction for how they've spent the last eight hours. I think that will enrich people's lives enormously, make them more energetic, make them feel better about themselves, almost certainly make their relations off the job better than they would be if they're mostly frustrated and bored when they're on the job. So that's the kind of human nature I want to help design, and that requires revamping the character of the work that most people do. What do you think might be the lowest hanging fruit that needs to be picked, if you will, to, to really accelerate this human nature design that, that you speak of in business in particular? Where is it? Which level? Is it leadership? Is it the front line? Is it the middle management? Is it something entirely? Is it, is it going to be driven by the consumers and the client behavior? I don't think so. I think it's leadership. Uh, I think leadership has to set the tone. And then, and not just make a speech at the annual meeting, uh, but actually make sure that the tone they set, the, the the sort of the goals and the purpose of the organization that they articulate, is then manifested all the way up and down the organization. So you hire managers who understand what the mission is, understand um, what it means to treat employees well, uh, and implement whatever it 
takes, whatever practices it takes for that to be the case um, with the with the people they manage. I think what often happens is leaders make these wonderful speeches that inspire you, you know, that, that you know, fill you with admiration. But meanwhile, they want a 10% return. And the managers know that unless they produce a 10% return, they're not going to keep their jobs. So the dirty work is done several levels below the CEO. And the CEO can go spouting whatever beautiful bromides he wants because he knows that people who are in the trenches know that what really matters is producing a 10% return. Mm. So the, the leaders have to mean it. And it has to be reflected in the way they um, uh, essentially uh, tr train and guide their managers. I don't see it happening from the bottom up. It's just too risky. Um, you know, I think the opposite happens when teachers unions negotiate with cities. It always ends up. I think teachers really care about the conditions under which their students have to learn. They want ideal educational opportunities for their students, or at least good educational opportunities. But when they come to the bargaining table, it always turns out that it's about wages and benefits and not about how many kids in a classroom or any of that other stuff. So I don't see it happening from uh, bubbling up from the bottom. Uh, in, uh, in Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, he asserts that happiness cannot be pursued, that it must ensue. Is it possible? Right. Is it possible to make the leap in business that profits, the bottom line, is not something we should pursue? Instead, it should be allowed to ensue by focusing on these other elements that will drive better great, performance? I think that's a great idea, but I'm afraid it's a bit of a fairy tale. <laughs> Especially, uh, I got to say, in the in public companies, you know, if you own your own business, you can do whatever the hell you want. Right. And if you fail, you fail. In public companies, your shareholders won't let you get away with it. And even worse than that, they want evidence on a quarter by quarter basis. Well, and how, so how much of, of the challenge we face is truly being driven by what I would call speculators, not even investors or shareholders who, who want immediate returns and are looking for short term. No, no, wins. no. I think that's exactly right. And it's clear. And, and then, you, you know, you you uh, you structure the salaries of high level executives so that they have they make a mere million dollars a year in salary and then they get 10, 20, 30 million dollars in bonuses. Uh, and the bonuses are directly tied to performance, which invariably means share price. So everybody's operating on a short-term basis. Yep. No one can take a breath. No one can take the risk of actually turning the ocean liner in a different direction. Uh, so I, that's why I think the notion that profits are a byproduct of a company uh, providing a needed service and, and providing it well is a bit of a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. Um, you gotta be able, you gotta control the company in order to have the breathing space to, uh, to do that. Yeah. And, and most public companies, um, there are really under the gun of, uh, speculators yep. under, the, under the thumb of speculators. That's my sense. As an well, and, and I think potentially, uh, you know, perhaps the boards of directors that, uh, are acting as the voice of the shareholders, uh, maybe there's an opportunity for them as well to uh, have a larger voice around 
a bit of at least, if not a longer term perspective, perhaps a midterm perspective and moving away from this quarterly guidance and expectations that exists? Well, look, that would be great. And, you know, the, 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 the most storied investor of our age, Warren Buffett, is, you know, whatever you want to say about him, short termism has never been his thing. True. You know, he buys and holds. And he, buy, he buys companies he thinks are good, and he lets the people running them run them the way they think they should be run. Yep. You know, uh, somehow or other, everyone everyone lionizes him, but no one seems to follow his example. <laughs> the answer is right underneath our noses. Right underneath our noses. Exactly right. <laughs> so, so you know, look, maybe you're right. And, you know, the, the source of optimism is pressure applied from below by uh, by young people entering the workforce and insisting voting with their feet. I won't take your job. Well, and much has been made of the the millennials who, uh, you know, are getting a bit of a bad rap that they're going to change jobs every one, two, three years, and that that's just sort of the way it is. And I actually, you know, when I really think about when I was young in my career, uh, I didn't want to change, even if the conditions weren't great. And I'm certainly not advocating for running a crappy company and having crappy working conditions. But Starting a new job every year or two or three is a tremendous amount of work, a tremendous amount of stress. And if if the workplace was a more meaningful place, uh, much as as we've talked about today, I don't think they would want to change. And so we're almost allowing this bad reputation of millennials being entitled and wanting to change and because they don't want to work hard, I think is a bunch of hogwash. I, I don't think it's true that they don't want to work hard. I I. I think they don't want to. They don't want to spin their wheels. So if the work changes, the comp- you don't have to change jobs. You know, if there's variety in the work, if there's challenge in the work, then what difference does it make what company you're doing it for? So I think this restlessness, presumed restlessness, uh, on the part of millennials is. Probably a reflection of how unsatisfying most workplaces are. Yeah. And that's not inevitable. And think about the incredible cost to companies. Massive. To have to retrain high level people. Yep. And just turnover in general and, and institutional knowledge being lost by the droves. Exactly. Yep. And none of that, in my view, is inevitable. Yep. Yep. That's another thing that may drive it because, because the millennials will vote with their feet people will start scratching their heads and asking, uh, what are we doing wrong? How do we keep these people? Mm -hmm. I I gave a talk at a company that I can't name, uh, but a very, very high visibility tech company. And their main concern at this point, they're growing rapidly. Their main concern is how do we keep our people? Because, you know, the the more mature companies, the Googles uh, and Microsofts, have a lot of trouble keeping their best people, because even though you know, I think Google is probably as enlightened a workplace as you could find, you know, eventually things just, there's a sameness to things and you're kind of hemmed in by legacy problems. You know, you, you want to create something new, but it can't be incompatible with the old because if it's incompatible with the old, you'll, you get 3 billion people mad at you. So all of a sudden you're not quite as free to exercise your imagination as you would be in a startup. Right. And I wonder, is there is there a correlation between size of company, perhaps maybe as a company grows so large in scale and numbers of employees that 
boy, to, to, to be able to with or preserve what may have started as an incredibly purpose-driven culture as it adds more people and grows and yep. scales. It's just that you lose your grip. Right. So the challenge is I, there's no doubt that that's, that's a, may, a real danger. So the challenge is to find a way to keep it small, you know, by maybe organizing working groups uh, that are largely self-contained. But if you do that, then you have the problem of siloing. Here you have three different working groups simultaneously coming to the identical solution to the identical problem, an enormous amount of time and effort wasted. So how do you have these working groups that feel intimate and flexible and all that stuff without wasting institutional knowledge. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, there's a challenge, but I don't know that it's a challenge that can't be overcome. So I think there's a lot to be said for trying to keep it local, no matter how big you get. You know, I don't want to minimize uh, the huge popularity of your paradox of choice TED Talk. I'm curious, is that work that has still uh, captured a large part of your mind share, or have you moved on fully to this work and why we work concept? I really can't move on because the world won't <laughs> But, you know, um, it's interesting. Uh, there's a new edition of the book that's going to be coming out in a few months that's not really very different from the old edition, just a little bit of a uh, new coat of paint here and there. Um, but uh, it just it's an idea that won't die, which is very gratifying, because as much as what I said was true in 2004, it's more true now. Aziz Ansari wrote this book called Modern Romance. You know, he's the comedian and TV star yeah. bestseller. And it's you know, it's about how hard it is in a world of Tinder. Which you would think would make it easy It's sure. actually become harder to form romantic attachments because you open up your cell phone and you have an infinite number of potential partners and you just go thumbing through them and thumbing through them and nobody's good enough and you end up spending another night alone. So, <laughs> so uh, I think, I think the, the problem is still very much with us. In some areas, it's worse than it was before. So people keep on wanting to talk to me about it. So I talk to them about it. I'm not doing any work on it. Well, it's just let's just we can blame it on salad dressing at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so, my my, uh, my my last question for you, a bit of a humorous one, uh, at least I hope. Uh, in that talk, you talked about uh, the infinite choices in the pair of blue jeans uh, yep. or, that were shared with you. I, I have to know: Have you found that perfect fit yet? I uh, know what I did was I. I, I, you know, <laughs> the benefit of writing this book is that it made me aware, even more than I previously was, <clears throat> of the trap that unlimited options can create. And so I have sort of resolutely limited the options I consider. And the result is that I have maintained modest standards for what counts as a, an acceptable pair of jeans or an acceptable meal in a restaurant. Um, so I, I was always sort of that way, but I became a more extreme version of that as a consequence of having written the book. That's so I'm sure there's a perfect pair of jeans out there somewhere. I don't give a damn. <laughs>
<laughs> That's great. Well, boy, uh, Barry, cannot thank you enough for spending the time with us today. Uh, just a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Congrats on all of your success, and we wish you absolutely nothing but the best as you continue your work helping us figure out why we work. Well, thank you so much. It was a lovely conversation. Likewise. Thanks a lot, Barry. I really appreciate sure. it. Have an awesome week. My pleasure. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, folks. You can obtain a transcribed version of this show and hear more interviews from the Built on Purpose podcast on our website, whyscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I have two additional things for you. Number one, I'm hoping to get some bonus questions answered by Barry from our community. So if you have any questions you'd like Barry to answer, please drop me a line at brian at whyscouts.com and I'll forward on your question. Second thing, if you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple of additional ones I think you'll love as well. Louis Efron, author of How to Find a Job, Career, and Life You Love, talks to us about the power of purpose and how asking the right questions will lead you to a life of meaning and purpose. Clayton Christopher, the founder of brands like Deep Eddie Vodka and Sweet Leaf Tea, talks about his entrepreneurship lessons in another. Once again, it's whyscouts.com forward slash podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.